Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Kenneth Tanner. Ken is a pastor of Church of the Holy Redeemer in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He writes for numerous websites and magazines, including the Huffington Post and Sojourners. Ken, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Hey, we're, you know, um, Synaxis is where is it's it. where it's at. If you're looking, okay, it's it's if right you're now. looking for lectionary uh, help, if you're into the scriptures, and yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I, I am freshly beard trimmed. Everything's looking. If people could see you, they'd be. You, you look great. Yeah. You look fantastic. Almost mosaic, but anyway. And you have the right to do with your beard what you want, just like in Jeremiah 18, a potter has a right to do what he wants with the clay, right? <laughs> See how I did that? Yeah, good. There? Works. So this is a pretty interesting text. A lot I going on. People will preach on this because it's a, it's a, it's a difficult text. I mean, it, here we have this word coming to the Lord, the word from the Lord coming to the people through Jeremiah. Uh, go down to the potter's house and I'll, I'll let you hear my words. So he goes there and he sees him working his wheel. And the vessel spoils, and he reworks in another vessel. And he says, "This is can I do this? You know, just as the potter's done, can I do this with Israel? Like, you know, I, I can do what I want." And the idea is that God is free, I guess, to reshape Israel, you know, in its own journey with God, right? And, and here, it's 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 it could be part of uh, the its own sort of fate before the Babylonians might be part of the reshaping. Yeah, um, isn't it interesting that it, it that the text is talking about God's capacities to reshape Israel, uh, but also that Israel is given a choice. I mean, there's uh, you you can continue to do um, evil, or you can continue, or you can decide to do good, and uh, so. There's two dynamics at work. One is God's capacity to um, surround and redirect and recreate and 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 move things towards His purposes, but but also uh, there's the collective human capacity um, to choose the good or to continue in evil. Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting that you have these two things. I mean, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes people want to phrase things in such a way that it's divine sovereignty or human freedom and it seems that it's more like divine sovereignty and human freedom or somehow our freedom is part of god's own mysterious sovereignty Mm -hmm. right in a way that that is is mysterious and and often confounds us but but both of these things seem to be true right that god repeatedly says i'm the master of history and yet talks to human beings as, as, as though it's not silly to think that we have freedom and dignity and responsibility and choice. He's and he's approaching them as if um, persuasion um, is important to him, not, not um, 
I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. And you have no choice in the matter. Um, but despite what you do, I am going to do my work and you have an opportunity to either, um, cooperate with my, my designs, my purposes for, for the creation, or you can oppose, um, you know, my, uh, the, the divine, um, the divine path, the divine way, uh, oppose love. And, um, it is, and this is true, I think, of all these texts this week, is there's a sense of per, uh, description of, of um, it's about persuasion. And uh, in this text, I think it's about um, God reasoning with Israel. But, you know, the fathers, of course, see much more going on here. There's, there is the potter and the clay, and they see creation and recreation or creation incarnation. Um, God starts out making human humanity and there's this disintegration of humanity that takes place. And it's the way they're spiritually reading this is the potter, uh, reshapes, reforms humanity, um, into the perfect vessel, which is Christ. Um, there's an even deeper spiritual reading where, um, the potter and the clay are, um, it, you know, it, the potter it, it becomes clay. And it was a really, really interesting reading of one of the fathers where the potter and the clay are the same thing. If you're just looking at it on a human level, the potter is reduced to uh, dust again at one at some point, even though he's making all these clay products. They're, they're really the same thing. And that if you don't, it, one of the fathers said, if you don't see this, just look at um, a, a, a sub, you know, just look at a um, a container of ashes. Uh, um, uh, when you're cremated and you're, the ashes are put in the container, that, that it's the same thing. And that it, it, there's a mystical sense in which the, the creator becomes dust too. Um, and, uh, is the one who is, who is both forming us, um, and, uh, um, both forming us and the one who forms. Uh, but in this sense, God participates in everything that it uh, that it means to be the one who's formed. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on here that I think um, uh, I think modern readers can miss, uh, contemporaries can miss, and we can definitely miss if we're just thinking about texts like this in terms of maybe a, the difference between the Calvinists and the Arminians or the difference between um, the Dominicans and the, and the Jesuits and, and so forth and so on. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's interesting to, I think to note, like for, I mean, pottery, you know, clay and pottery, this is like to the ancient world, what like steel is for us, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, you know, it's so commonplace. And I think, you know, it's important probably that, that, the the process continues to be reversible as long as yes. it's not thrown in the kiln, right? Yes. It's only after it's thrown in the kiln and there's a chemical change that, that that's right. So like, there's this idea that 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 as long as the clay is on the wheel, the process is open ended and pliable. And then you know it's interesting because in verse verses one through six again seem to emphasize this the potter's control. And then yet you know the the allegory seems to change because. You know, there's this exhortation for the for the clay to be pleasing, right? And the clay, it's hard, you know, so then the clay gets agency. But again, you're right, that's saying that that humans somehow our own freedom is a mysterious part of 
the mosaic that is history and ultimately in the potter's hands. And so, yeah, that these, these two, both, both these realities are at work in this passage. And interestingly, the lectionary leaves out verse 12, which changes, which changes the tone of the story, right? Cause in verse 12, uh, after, you know, after, uh, you know, the, the, the Lord is, is, is calling them to return from the evil ways. It says, but they say, this is, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So it's kind of like, it does change the tone of the reading a little bit if you throw in verse 12. Yeah. Well, you know, this is interesting that God repents, you know, um, and, um, you know, Origen says, well, of course he knows. Uh, where everything is headed. And so, um, when he uses this language, he's treating us, um, he's, he, you know, he's, he's speaking at our level, um, you know, because, you know, God doesn't repent, but there is this mystery that if we respond to grace and we respond to love and we respond to this, you know, um, to, to God, the revelation of God, um, that, uh, things do, it does make a difference. It makes a difference in the way things uh, go. And there's a cooperation that's going on here between this, the sovereignty of God, which is very different than human understandings of sovereignty. It's not a, it's not just a, like a, um, an imposition of power, uh, but, but of love is involved and, um, humility is involved and the potter becoming the clay um, that he's fashioning and somehow getting involved in what it means to be human and, um, and, 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 and casting his lot in with the rest of us and uh, this, these fleshly containers that we have and being the one who is the perfect vessel and, and who um, we all get integrated into, right? I mean, we get, we get to, uh, we get to be, we, we become, the kind of clay he is by grace. Um, yeah, so. yeah. Amen to that. On to Philemon. This is the only, I think, time Philemon is in the lectionary, right? I mean, it's only one time. It's a short <laughs> yeah. book. And here, I think we read the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, which is easy to do because it's a pretty short uh, book. It's only 21 verses. And it's interesting, right? Because here you have Philemon, who this is addressed to, is a slave holder. And his slave, Onesimus, apparently uh, go, you know, runs away to Paul and... And it seems as though Onesimus is converted through his encounter mm-hmm. with Paul. And Paul says, and I, I was reading somewhere that it's not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon that if there was a slave master dispute, I forget someone was writing somewhere an ancient historian that someone's referencing this historian that if a slave went to seek an intermediary, like a third party, that that wasn't they weren't necessarily yet considered a fugitive slave. If this happened, so. Mm-hmm. So there's a possibility maybe he's got, there's been some dispute or something and, and Paul, you know, he's looking to Paul as some kind of mediator because he knows they're close. And then through this, he's converted. And it's interesting because Paul says, uh, that he's, he was, in Onesimus, I think means useful, right? Formerly he's u- useless to you, Philemon, but now he's indeed useful to both you and me. I am sending him. That is my own heart. The Greek there, my splankna. I remember my Greek teacher in seminary saying, my splankna. 
uh, you know, his heart, his son, his splank, this is, I'm sending my heart to you. And it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of open-ended. I mean, it, it seems to be that the implication is, I mean, Paul seems to mean for him to infer from his implication that he's now uh, a brother in the Lord. Now that's the, the, the master slave relationship should change and it should be a different kind of relationship. And maybe he's implying that he should be freed. Yeah. It, there is, you know, traditionally um, he's fled without permission. He's stolen from the household. Um, he ends up with Paul. Um, he's um, converted uh, to the faith. He's a brother in Christ. Um, this, he, Paul is writing now. He's very close to Paul. He's like a spiritual son to him now. And he's writing back to his owner to say, you know, um, and again, you know, just like, you know, God is trying to reason with human beings and reason with Israel and Jeremiah. Paul is now in this position of trying to reason uh, with Philemon um, uh, about his brother. And he's he's saying, you know, ex- accept him as your equal in Christ. Um, and uh, for because you love me, you know, um, and he's not doing it in a way that is um, top heavy. That's, you know, I am your spiritual authority. So I am telling you to do this. He's inviting much as God's in, in, inviting the children of Israel into communion with him. Paul's inviting Philemon to a higher level of communion. Um, we are brothers in Christ. This man is our brother in Christ. And so receive him as such. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I think of Paul here. I think of him writing in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, you know, we, we no longer review, view anybody from a human point of view, for we once regarded Christ that way, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you, of course, you see in Christ, you know, the... the the wisdom of God, right? Making, you know, showing, uh, the was making foolish, the wisdom of the world, right? The, the foolishness, you know, of God makes, makes the wisdom of the world look silly, you know, in the cross. And, and it's almost seemingly a kind of similar argument, right? That, that, that now Onesimus is part, the new creation has broken out. And so that reorders, you know, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And, and there's this radical, new sociological thing that breaks out from this theological event in history. And, and, and you're right. He seems to be, it's interesting because he's calling Philemon to do something liberative uh, and using his, he used his power subversively and he calls him to do it subversively. He doesn't, you're right. He doesn't do it top down. He kind of models what he's asking Philemon yeah, to do. Yeah. And he, you know, he starts out addressing the whole household, which, uh, you know, of course includes the slaves and, uh, Philemon, who some, some of whom might have some, um, sympathy with, uh, Anissima. Um, uh, he's appealing, uh, not only to their mutual love for each other, he and Philemon, uh, but their, their love of Christ. And, um, and he, as you say, he's trying to reorder the relationships here, but not and not, 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 uh, from a point of view of I am your leader, you must obey. But as um, we're in this together, Christ is the one who unites us all, and and let's let's walk together with him. I know, and of course, N.T. Wright has made this letter, uh, you know, the centerpiece of 
his entire, um, you know, book on Paul and the faithfulness of God, um, opening up the, um, that massive work with this letter and centering this letter, the very essence of Pauline, uh, uh, mystery theology and everything else. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's, that, that for all of our, talk about power today this is a very interesting passage to read in western culture because it 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 does like challenge the way we i mean and we all you know think about the way that we all think about power and and what how god being vulnerable in his sovereignty and power like what are the implications of that for us as we deal with each other in different power differential sort of and just as a practical matter of pastoral care I, I think almost 80% of what I deal with, with young people, uh, 20s, 30s, 40-year-olds coming to Redeemer are occasions of spiritual abuse by pastoral leaders, uh, that they've, uh, been involved with. I don't, you know, whether it's a, a skewed view of, of, uh, gender roles or, um, a, uh, a manipulation via spiritual gifts or, um, uh, you know, uh, taking, uh, you know, taking liberties, uh, with, um, uh, I, I don't know, their, their position. Um, and, and it's not gentle persuasion. It doesn't look like what Paul's doing here. Um, it, it doesn't seem founded in love. It seems founded in, um, you know, power. And uh, so I think um, our human notions of power, and um, I, I think Paul's trying to model something differently for us here. Absolutely. And on to the gospel reading. You know, there's a, there's this book by F.F. F. Bruce, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Mm. As, and this is in there. As if any of the same. I mean, it should be the hard and harder sayings, I think, sometimes. But, yeah. <laughs> but this is definitely one of the harder ones, right? Like, here we have Jesus in Luke 14, uh, verses 25 through 33. He's got large crowds are traveling with him. And he turns to them. And this is like exactly what Joe Olstein would do, right? When you got the large crowds. All right, let's say something hard. <laughs> Thin out the herd. <laughs> Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, you know, if you're going to build a tower, doesn't estimate you know, whether you can complete it. And, and he goes on with some other analogies. And he says, you know, therefore, uh, you know, none of you can be my disciple if you don't give up all your possessions. And so this is a very seemingly hey, challenging passage about what it means to follow Jesus, right? And and here you have it, you know, it seems like Jesus is thinking, you know, here, you know, he, he's on this long journey to Jerusalem in Luke. It's part of the long, you know, section in Luke where he's journeying to Jerusalem. And he and he brings up the cross more and, 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 and his own death and... And Robert Capon, of course, talks about the parables of grace that come here, uh, it, it, which all have this death and resurrection kind of themes. It's almost as like Jesus is saying, are you not getting it, right? Are you not getting it? I'm, I'm, I'm doing crosstalk here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I, the, um, the way that the, the fathers, of course, looking at, at passages like this and Jesus saying, you know, hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. Um, he's, he's not saying, he's not overturning the commandment to honor our parents. He's not 
overturning, you know, pastoral wisdom of loving your uh, wife as Christ loves the church. He's not overturning, you know, biblical wisdom about, you know, um, uh, you know, not causing your children to be angry. Um, or, you know, it's my God, he's the one who says, love your enemies. So he's not telling us, you know, that we're supposed to literally hate our family, but he is saying that he is saying that we need to love God and we need to love the path of life and we need to love, um, uh, the, the cross, um, and esteem them more than, um, these, these relations and, um, that we, that, that these relations only find their meaning, um, in the cross. And so, uh, I think that's one way of, I think that has to be tackled because you've got, you know, people that want to read these texts literally and, um, and, and, uh, they trip them up. So I think we want to say that first, but I also think, you know, Jeremiah is dealing with God trying to persuade the people of, of Israel to turn towards him and toward life and towards love. Um, you've got Paul trying to persuade, um, uh, Philemon, uh, here, I think he's, there's a little bit of, are you persuaded within yourself? Um, you know, you're, are you going to set out to do all of these things and build a tower, fight a battle or whatever? Are you resolved and persuaded within yourself to turn away from everything that distracts you from the cross and to, um, and to really march towards, um, uh, toward the kingdom? Um, and, and, and so I think it is a question of, it's also addressing our will and what we are prepared to do, you know? Yeah. Robert Capon, I, I want to quote him here on this passage because it's, it's, it's great. Uh, it's, 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 it's just as only Capon can put it. He says, Jesus, in other words, gives them the hard sell. Listen, he says, I don't want to waste your time here. What I'm laying out for you is not only the best offer of salvation, you've ever seen it's the only one that will actually work when you get it home this is the real thing not some twenty dollar twenty seven dollar fake rolex oyster you can pick up on the sidewalk in new york but unfortunately even with my spectacularly low overhead it'll still cost you a bundle how much will jp morgan said if you have to ask you can't afford it but that was about a yacht which you could get a, a, a which you could get along without what i'm selling you really need so i say to you better ask because you don't want to be handed the bill on one of your tightwad days and find yourself looking around for a cheaper outfit to deal with. How much does it cost then? Everything you've got, the works, the whole farm, with no pocket money left. There are no pockets in a shroud. Mm. Jesus' point, however, is not simply that discipleship in the way of death resurrection is expensive. More important, it's that it is liberating once the price is paid. For the very next thing he says is is the parable of salt. I've already dealt with other aspects of this parable above in chapter four. Here, I simply want to underscore its note of liberation. Think about what Jesus is actually saying. On the one hand, it is terrifying and unreasonable. In order to gain salvation, life, and reconciliation, you have to lose every amenity, every relationship, every last scrap of the good life you might have. In short, you have to be dead. On the other hand, the deal is a bargain to end all bargains. Sooner or later, you're going to have to lose all those things anyway, (laughs) willy-nilly. The death that is your wherewithal for buying a new world is already in the bank. So that's really interesting that, that this idea, because he talks about cross bearing in, in some sense, this, this dying right with Christ is like, is, is losing, is living posthumously in the middle of this life. Right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a death 
but it's uh, it, it's sort of a death oh, uh, with a resurrection yeah. on the other end. Yeah, a whole of life being a, a choice um, to die um, in order to live. I mean, it, it, you know, it's it, we're, we're promised, we're promised by God that if we die with Him, we'll live. And, uh, and, and we get all kinds of opportunities to do this ahead of, as you say, the, you know, as Capon was saying, ultimately we have to suffer. We have to, we have to suffer the loss of all things anyway. And so, um, Jesus is saying the way to life, not only in the world to come, but in this world is to abandon, um, all of these things and to die to them. Um, it's just all of these passages, Jeremiah, Philemon, and uh and the Luke passage are really dealing with human freedom and the, the these the choice that is in front of us. And I love what Hart says about you know free will and human freedom is only when we're only truly free when we choose the good. I mean, you know, it's it, to to have a sort of generic freedom to just do whatever you want, which is a lot of what people think of when they, they're talking about free will, is not what Jews and Christians are talking about when they talk about free will. Freedom is always the choice for the good, you know. And, um, and so I think in, in some sense, all of these, um, passages are, um, God persuading us to choose, um, the good and freedom. Um, and of course, by grace. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And when you choose that, the way of the cross, like he's saying, it's interesting because it's humiliating because you're saying that, you know, all he's saying things that are valuable to people. And we usually think, you know, of relationships and, and, and our assets and things like this is things that make us who we are. And so dying to those things is sort of admitting that the things that we prop or use to prop ourselves up are really, uh, are really keeping us down. And, and, and yet it, it, it's, it's to embrace the kind of vulnerability. It's sort of like the parable of the, of the, uh, great banquet where, you know, it, it's like he's saying, all you have to do is admit that you're a certified loser and the servants will bring you into the party. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so this death is, it's humiliating, but like Robin Williams once said, you know, he needed the humiliation that led to real humility. And, and that's the humiliation I think can lead us to the, to the humility that will accept the salvation is really free and, and that we just have to die to receive it. Yeah. I, yeah, it's um, death is a complicated business, and I, I, you know, I think um, one of the things that's really been helpful to me is to think about um, death as the enemy of God. But in in you know, getting back to Jeremiah and the Potter who becomes clay and submits to death himself, is that the way God choose chose to defeat and engage the enemy of death was, as you say, humility. So he he enters death completely with us and on our behalf, not just his own death on the cross, but all of our deaths um, he participates in in order to in order to defeat death and to transfigure death into something that gives life. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, death is you know, it's a, it's a negation, but having been filled with God, now it's something that genuinely is able to bring life. Um, Amen to that. And I hope that the proclamation of Christ and him crucified brings life to our listeners this Sunday and to your hearers and to, you know, I hope that that's preachers are blessed in that endeavor. Amen, brother. Always good to be with you. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, 
write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again for being on the podcast and thank you again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare the